um, Friday. Uh, so pray for them. We Sandy got a text tonight, said to keep them in continual prayer. So I'm not real sure what that meant, other than obviously they're sorrowing, no doubt about that at all. So pray for them. <clears throat> Turn to First Samuel chapter two. First Samuel two. We've been going through First Samuel at this point in the narrative. Hannah and Elkanah have been given Samuel an answer to prayer, as, we, as you know. We've talked about this. They've dedicated him in service to the Lord for his entire life. Hannah has glorified the Lord with this great song of thanksgiving and praise in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through uh, verse 10. Uh, and so let's read verse 11, continuing on tonight. It says, after that great song of praise, Then Elkanah went to his home at Ramah, but the boy ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. You see, after the dedication and prayer of Hannah, and after they, after all that takes place, they leave Eli there. True to their word, they leave Eli there, and they leave him, or rather not Eli, but Samuel, to be in the care of Eli at the house of God at Shiloh. They had made a vow to the Lord, and they kept their vow, and so they were they honored God with that. Um, and now Samuel would be, um, though just a young boy, would be apprenticed by Eli the priest, uh, and some to be some in some spiritual position one day. And so he's there ministering before the Lord, it says. Now, the word ministering describes the service of Levites and priests in the tabernacle and uh, later on in the temple. So this is a sacred service that God has set apart for priests to do, for Levites to do. And here we have uh, Samuel engaged in this as a, as a young boy learning how to do this. It's a very solemn business, a very serious business. And uh, so Samuel's being apprenticed for this. Um, and the rest of the chapter is going to become obvious that there's a, a contrast being drawn between Samuel and the sons of Eli. We read the passage, and so you may have picked up on that. One of the clues to that contrast doesn't appear on the surface, but it's, it's found in the word translated boy in verse 11. Samuel, it says, uh, the boy, rather, ministered to the Lord. That word boy is very versatile in the Hebrew language. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean, for example, it was used of... Uh, the baby Moses, when he was uh, floating on the Nile River in a basket, uh, it called him that same term. It is described. It describes Samuel after he had just been weaned uh, in the previous chapter. It's the same term as used of Joseph when he was 17 years old in the book of Genesis. And also, it was used and it describes a young man of marriageable age in Genesis 34:19. So that same word has this wide range from all the way from infanthood to a boy, a young boy, growing up, a teenager, and then even a young man who's being married. It encompasses all those, those, that range. Um, and you'll notice that word is used throughout this text, the word, that word translated boy or young man or something to that effect. In 2.11, it's used of Samuel to describe a young boy. In verse 15, it's translated servant, that is the priest servant there. It should be the priest boy, the boy of the priest. Another, another uh, reference to that word. Verse 17, it talks about the young men who were Eli's sons. Same word uh, there. And then in verses 18, uh, 26, and chapter 3, verse 1, it's used of the boy Samuel. So in every one of these cases, you have young people. This chapter is filled with young people in contrast to other young people. And so we're first introduced to the sons of Eli, and if you remember in chapter 1, verse 3, all it says is the sons of Eli were there, and it gives us a heads up. The Bible often does that. It gives us a little introduction and then backs off and doesn't say anything for a while. And then later on down the road, it picks up that story again. 
So it gives us a heads up in chapter 1 that something's going to happen with the two sons of Eli in verse 3. And now we enter into chapter 2 and we really see who they are. They're lowlifes. We see them for who they really are. Now we're finding out these guys are not good guys at all. This is, as I say, a chapter of contrast. Samuel is a good boy, whereas the sons of Eli are bad boys. And that's the bottom line. There's a contrast here between the faithfulness of Samuel and his family and the unfaithfulness of Eli and his family. And that is what's going on in chapter 2. We're going to see, actually see three contrasts in this chapter that make that very clear to us. First of all, the first contrast <clears throat> is the irreverence of Eli's sons versus the faithfulness of Samuel. The irreverence of Eli's sons versus the faithfulness of Samuel, that's found in verses 12 to 21. It says in verse 12, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. You can see the stark contrast right away as you look in these verses between the two ministers, the Samuel ministering as a young boy and then the sons of Eli ministering in the tabernacle. Between these two ministries right away, right from the get-go, there's a sharp contrast drawn. While Samuel was given an answer to fervent prayer and he's dedicated to the Lord, the sons of Eli, on the other hand, they're a complete disgrace to the Lord. It says they were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Very blunt statement. Now, the King James has translated that very literally and if you have a King James, and some people in our, in our church use that, it says the sons of Eli were sons of Belial, or as the Southerners would say, as I would say, the sons of Belial. Okay, You can't say Belial. You have to say Belial. That's how we got to do it. So, And that's what it literally says. They're sons of Belial. Now, we've come across that term before. <clears throat> in Judges, we came across it in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel as well, verse 16. I didn't mention it then. I didn't want to get into it then. But 1 Samuel 1.16 talks about um, Hannah, well, and as a matter of fact, you remember Hannah was in great, great distress praying to the Lord, praying for her son, and Eli the priest looks at her and says, what are you, drunk over there? And he, he accuses her of being drunk, and she says, do not consider your servant as a worthless servant. Same word. Don't consider your servant as a daughter of Belial, she says. I'm not, I'm not that. I'm not a worthless person. Um, that term appears nine times in, in, the, in the books of First and Second Samuel, it's got an uncertain origin, although it's used as a name for Satan in 2 Corinthians 6.15. Um, but the meaning of it really is to be worthless, as it's translated in Asby, to be useless, to be good for nothing. A uh, good for nothing person. It describes people who are destructive in their behavior as well. And so, and by the way, you, you, what do you expect out of worthless people? To be destructive in their behavior, right? I mean, that's, that will, that's what we expect. It's people that are hurtful of others. And so that's why Hannah was taken back when Eli thought she was drunk. She says, don't consider me to be a daughter of Belial. Don't consider me to be a worthless woman. I'm not a good for nothing. I think that no one who knows the Lord would want that label placed upon them unless they were acting that way. But isn't it ironic that the one, the man, the priest who had sons who were truly scoundrels, who were truly worthless, would accuse someone else of being that. Isn't that ironic? It's that thing about having the giant log in your own eye, and yet you're accusing someone else of the same thing. And we seem to do that all the time. Now, it says here they did not know the Lord, these sons of Eli. And that word there means that they had no regard for the Lord is what it means. They gave no respect to the Lord. Now, they knew about God. They knew, they knew that there was a God. In fact, they even served in the tabernacle. I mean, they were closest to the holy things of God, right? They were right there in the, in the midst of serving the Lord, and, and yet they had no regard for God at all. They knew all about him. 
and, and Samuel was learning to do the same thing, but he did not know him, or, or was say, try, trying to do the same thing. But, but these men, they didn't know the Lord. They had no regard for the Lord at all, whereas Samuel did. Uh, and don't forget what time period this is in history. It's the period of the judges, right? And what happens in the period of the judges as we went through the book of Judges? Every man does what? Every man does what? Right in his own eyes. And so Eli's sons are the rule rather than the exception uh, in this time period. And they're making a mockery of the Lord's offerings as you read in these verses right here. Look at verse 13. These worthless men don't know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was this. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire, he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. And so not only did they have a, a disregard for God, but they had a total disregard for the offerings of God. In fact, it seems as if, as you read these verses, it's kind of difficult. It seems as if there's two evil practices taking place in regard to the offerings of the Lord by the sons of Eli. Verse 13 and 14 describe the first, the first practice. When anyone offered a sacrifice to the Lord... The servant of Hophni and Phinehas would come along. He had a three-pronged fork, and he would really take a stab at the meat inside that was being cooked, at that offering that was being cooked. He would take a big stab at it, and he would get out as much as he could to give to Hophni and Phinehas, and they would eat it. They would eat of it. So they grabbed as much food as they could get, a big, sizable chunk of the offering. Now, Deuteronomy 18.3 says it's okay for the priest, and in fact, the priest should eat of part of the offering. Yes, they should do that. That's true. However, they were to eat of the shoulder of the cooked meat and the two cheeks and the stomach. But Eli's sons ignored all that. They didn't do all that. They didn't follow the word of God. They got their attendant to get a big uh, fork and just jab at it and get as much as they could for themselves to eat. That was their method of, uh, of, of partaking of the offering. And then another practice in verses 15 and 16 apparently took place. Before the fat was burned of the animal being offered, the attendant would come to the worshiper and demand that they give the priest the meat first. And uh, they wanted to have the raw portion. They wanted to have the fatty portion of the meat is really what they were getting at. Now, when I was in Taiwan, Sandy and I found out something. The people there like to eat little chunks of fat in their meat, in their soup or whatever they're making. They'll throw a little, you don't know it's there, right? <laughs> I don't want to eat fat, I'll be honest with you. I have no desire to eat fat off of meat. And so... They'll throw it in there, and I'm looking around at that soup, wondering what can I pick out and not eat that fat part of it. You hope you get it right. But apparently the sons of Eli loved to eat fat. And so this guy would demand that they give him the raw meat first, or they demanded, or they threatened that they would take it by force. Now, regarding this second practice, the Le Leviticus 7 has something to say about the fat of an animal offered to the Lord. If, you know, the, the fat... It's supposed to be burned for the Lord only. And that's the end of it. You burn the fat and the offering, and it, and it belongs to the Lord. And, nowhere, and nobody else does it belong to. No one was supposed to eat that portion. It belonged to God. So they went after the Lord's share of the offering, these guys. So they're compounding their sin, being highly irreverent. It's hard to know how these two practices fit together. But the point is, 
They were abusing the offerings of the Lord. Look what it says at the end of verse 14. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Hophni and Phinehas are intimidating the worshipers of Israel who come to, to offer. These guys are coming to offer, the, the community is coming to offer uh, offerings to the Lord, and they're being t- intimidated by the priest instead of helped by them, instead of blessed by them. Verse 17 is a commentary on the seriousness of what they were doing. It says in verse 17, Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men, that is Eli, Hophni, and the servant, they despised, they're all young men, by the way, they despised the offering of the Lord. Now, that was not some mistake they made. It wasn't an accident. They were doing this on purpose. They were showing absolute contempt for the offerings of the Lord. And the Lord says, this is a very great sin. These young men, as they're called here, were guilty of several things so far. They had no regard for the Lord. They had no regard for his offerings. And their example before the people was absolutely deplorable. Boy, you want these guys in positions of spiritual leadership, right? These are the guys you want. I mean, they they did everything wrong. You know, that's, that's the problem. There's so many people in positions of leadership that abuse their position. People look up to them for leadership. They abuse their position. But those in positions of spiritual leadership have a heavy responsibility placed upon them. A very heavy responsibility. Hebrews 13.7 says that spiritual leaders will give an account of what they do to God. They're going to give an account of their over, overseership, speaking of elders in particular, to God for the responsibility of overseeing. The Gospels say, to whom much is given of them, much shall be required also. The, the verse that gets me the most is James 3.1 where it says, those who teach are going to incur a greater condemnation upon themselves. You think those verses scare me? They do. They do scare me when I read those verses, and that makes me want to run away and hide somewhere. And so why, I know this is a serious business, so we have to be careful. Pastors and deacons and teachers in the church and all who hold a position of leadership have to be careful lest their poor example that they set for people uh, mislead the people and lead them astray. Not only that, parents have a responsibility as well. I mean, based on this passage, your children are looking up to you. What is it they're seeing when they look at their mom and dad? Our lives are to be exemplary before others. But there's another application here as well, and that is this. How do you treat the things of the Lord? How do you view the things of the Lord? Do you treat them with reverence? Do you realize the sacred nature of what you're dealing with, the Word of God? Do you realize the sacred nature of the Word of God? It says in Isaiah, God looks to those who tremble at His Word, right? those who are humble before him. Do we realize the sacred nature of the scriptures and of of prayer and of the things of God and of the church of God? Or have they become commonplace to you? How do you view those things? Eli's sons didn't view them in a very sacred light at all. They didn't even care. It could be that you don't even know the Lord tonight and maybe you show nothing but contempt for him and his church, in which case you're in serious trouble with the Lord. The sons of Eli were in serious trouble with the Lord at this point and they didn't care. But notice the contrast. Look at verses 18 to 21. Now Samuel was ministering before the Lord as a boy wearing a linen ephod. And his mother would make him a little robe and bring it to him from year to year when she would come up uh, with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children from this woman in place of the one she dedicated to the Lord, that's Samuel. And And they went to their home. The Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and gave birth to three sons and two daughters. 
and the boy Samuel grew before the Lord. Notice this great contrast. While the sons of Eli are blatantly irreverent to the Lord, to the things of God, Samuel is learning to serve the Lord, and that's in the verses we just read. Now, Samuel is just a little boy. He does not yet know the Lord, according to 1 Samuel 3.7. It says that. Just a little boy, too, too young to understand, too young to come to know the Lord truly, doesn't understand all these things. The thing is, he's being taught about the Lord. That's the important thing. He's being taught about the Lord at a young age, and it's never too early to start teaching your children about the things of the Lord. It's never too early to do that. The sooner the better. I was, you know, appreciated Mike this morning talking about how he talks to his children about the gospel, well, even though they're, what, 5 and 6 and 13 and some other age or something like that. They're young kids, some of them, right? And yet, nevertheless, he's teaching them about, about the Lord, and I think he said, do you think I'm crazy? No, I don't think that at all. He's doing the right thing, as all of us in this church should be doing. Uh, th- those that have young children start right away. Elkanah and Hannah understood that, and right away they wanted to train their son in the things of God. So in this, we see in this section Samuel's wearing this little linen ephod, the garment worn by the priest of Israel. It's kind of like a little priest in training, right? Can you and I envision him in my mind? He's a cute little kid at this point. <laughs> by the way, his mother and father... Without, as you know, Elkanah, right? What's his big thing in life? Going to the yearly sacrifice, right? We saw that in chapter 1, chapter 2. Every year without fail. He will not miss that yearly sacrifice. And, El- and his wife didn't either. They went every year and they attended. And they'd come every year and they'd see, they'd see Samuel as Eli was teaching him about the ministry. It reminds me of some people who like to attend the yearly shepherds conference. And you, you people know who you are out there that do this every year. Would not, you would not miss it for anything, right? Well, Eli desired to, uh, every time when they would come, Eli would bless Hannah. Uh, she would, he would bless her by saying, I, may the Lord give you more children to replace the one that you brought here to be dedicated for a lifetime service to God. That was Samuel. And so, and they, would, they were blessed. This was a blessed family. There was nothing but blessing concerning Samuel and his family and, and God, and this chapter is about honoring God, it's about, and it's about dishonoring God too. Both those contrasts. If you honor the Lord as Elkanah and Hannah did, you will not be the loser. You will not lose out on that. Those who lo- lose out on the blessings of God are those who hold back, those who are selfish. Like Hannah was not selfish. She gave up her son even to serve the Lord, and, and she was blessed by God, blessed with five more children. And so you see this contrast. Samuel is growing before the Lord. Eli's sons are growing further away from the Lord in this time. It's a tale of two families, isn't it? One serious about God, one that in general could care less about God in, in most ways. And so the first contrast is the irreverence of Eli's sons versus the faithfulness of Samuel. The second contrast, the rejection of Eli's sons versus the maturing of Samuel. The rejection of Eli's sons versus the maturing of Samuel. At this time, Eli is very old, says in verse 22. Uh, and it says there, he heard about all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. Know, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for, for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. 
Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. You see how Samuel sprinkled throughout this chapter like this to show the contrast? Eli's very old at this time. Looks like he's given his sons the responsibility of ministering as priests in the tabernacle. Eli is the senior priest. He should be overseeing this whole operation in the, in the tabernacle, watching what's going on, being careful to, to note what's going on, but he does not appear to be doing that at all. Now, his age may have been a factor, but nevertheless, the young, young men need oversight in this crucial responsibility, right? He left them to do this on their own. These are just young men. Uh, that, that same word that translated boy transla translated young men, they're not old men. They haven't been around for a while. They're just young guys, and so they're basically doing whatever they want to. It looks like without supervision. Verse 22 says this, Eli heard about all his sons were doing to, his, to all Israel. He heard about it. Now, what were they doing at this time? Well, the end of verse 14 again, it says there, Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. They were abusing the people. They were mistreating the people. They were intimidating the people who came to offer sacrifices. They were greedily taking the largest portion of the sacrifice instead of what they were supposed to do according to the law. They wanted to gorge on this food like gluttons, and that's what they did. And so they were abusing the people in their offerings. Now Eli heard about all this. He heard it as if from a distance, but he didn't seem to be witnessing it firsthand. He heard reports about it. You know, there's more of a, a problem going on here than just the agedness of Eli. I get the impression that Eli's in retirement mode right now. Like, don't bother me. I'm doing my thing over here. I'm taking it easy. You guys run the show in the tabernacle. He seems to be a father who's distant from his sons. Seems to be a father who, whose sons never took his authority seriously in the home because he never enforces authority in the home. I don't get that impression at all from this whole chapter. Now, I don't know if he was too busy serving the Lord in the tent, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, to be taking an interest to his children or not. But I'll tell you something. We've got to be careful we don't get too busy serving the Lord to forget about the children that the Lord has entrusted us with, right? He's entrusted us with children to minister to. And, that, and to serve the Lord, by the way, means that you're intimately involved with your children as well. We don't want to neglect them. Eli obviously was never intimately involved with his children. You can see that as you go along. He heard reports about his sons also committing immorality, it says in verse 22, with the women, it says, who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. <clears throat> now, who are these serving women? Well, they're mentioned only in one other place. That's Exodus 38.8. And it simply says there, there were women that were serving at the, at the tent of meeting. And nobody knows exactly who they, what, in what capacity they served, only that they did, they did serve there. Hophni and Phinehas may have used their priestly authority to intimidate these women, as they were great at intimidating people anyway, right? And it says they committed immorality with them. So these guys are com compounding sin upon sin, all in connection with the tabernacle. And so they're getting worse. Eli hears about all this and he rebukes them. Well, sort of, he rebukes them. Verse 23, he says, What are you doing such terrible things for? You're, everybody's talking about what you're doing. It's all over the community. You know, that's another thing about evil. Evil spreads to the community, whether it's true or not. Gossip spreads, right? And then the Lord's name gets dragged through the mud. And that's what's happening here. And it's true, though. But in verse 25, Eli tries to reason with his sons theologically. He says, what are you guys doing? Here, let me give you a little theological reasoning. He says this in verse 25. Look, if one person is pitted against another in some kind of dispute, 
God will settle the dispute between them, probably most think by means of a judge, probably. That dispute can be settled. But if the two parties are, if two parties that are in dispute are God and a person, what third party can intervene with and, and come between them and mediate for them? There's no such third party that can do that. Now, Eli's son had sinned against the Lord, yes, and that was, that was bad, but they had also sinned against people. They had done both. But that's the extent of Eli's rebuke. That's the end of it. It's just kind of a mild rebuke. It's an ineffective rebuke. He just says something. He doesn't do anything to back it up. And I think I get the impression as a father, he never did anything to back anything up with his, uh, but, but say some words to his sons as they grew up. That's the impression I get. Now, these guys didn't need to hear a sermon. They weren't the kind that sat around and listened to sermons and got anything out of them at all, at all but Eli's going to give them a sermon anyway. What Eli should have done is remove them from the priesthood. He should have said, okay, you guys are gone, <laughs> or disciplined them in some way. He didn't do that. He should have done it a long time ago. How did Hophni and Phinehas react to their father's sermon? It says here, they would not listen to the voice of their father. Eh, we're not listening to you. They, I don't think they ever listened to the voice of their father. This is not something that started now. This is something that started a long time ago. They didn't listen to the voice of their father. They did whatever they wanted to. They did whatever they pleased. But that would soon come to an end because it says the Lord desired to put them to death. He desired to put them to death. It says here they refused to listen because it says for, because the, the reason for their stubbornness, stubbornness was the Lord desired to put them to death. God hardened their hearts. God hardened their hearts because they refused to obey the Lord consistently. Now, we've already seen their track record of disobedience, right? We've seen that through the chapter so far. Their track record of disobeying God, of doing their own thing, of disregarding the Lord. And God simply confirmed what was already true in them. He confirmed them in the hardness of their heart. One commentator said this, Someone can remain so firm in his rebellion that God will confirm him in it. So much so that he will remain utterly deaf to and unmoved by any warnings of judgment or pleas for repentance. Reminds me of Isaiah 6, where it says that they have ears to hear, but they won't hear, right? They've been not obeying, and God just confirms them in their hardness. And that's what happened here. The sons of Eli sealed their own fate with God here. Now, you don't want to be messing around with the Lord. We want to be listening to what he says. We want to be... Oh, oh, taking heed to what he says. He extends his hands of, uh, of mercy to sinners who repent and are humble before him, but he may also confirm a person in, in their sins and in the, the hardness of their heart. He may do that, as he did here. Eli's sons had passed the point of no return. That's not for us to determine. That's for God to determine, by the way. He had passed the, they had passed the point of no return as far as the Lord was concerned, and God utterly rejects the sons of Eli. But note the contrast. Here it is, is it again, verse 26. The contrast to Samuel, it says in verse 26, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. He's growing up physically, Samuel is. He's a little boy, but he's growing up. He's learning. He's growing in favor with people. People see Samuel, and they see a boy who's maturing. They see a boy who's pleasant to be around. They see a boy who's not a brat. He's someone who's not disobedient. He's someone people don't mind being around, not misbehaving. Also, he's increasing in favor with the Lord. <clears throat> the Lord is pleased with Samuel. The Lord is taking delight in Samuel. He's working in his life. Samuel is responding to him properly. Does that remind you of any other verses? I thought of John the Baptist when I read this. I thought of in Luke 180, in the child, it says of John the Baptist, the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. 
John the Baptist did, becoming spiritual man. I thought of Jesus, Luke, Luke 2.52. It says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and, man, and men. Similar verses. In all three of these lives, God is working to bring about an individual who will accomplish all his will. That's what he's doing. Now, what a dra- drastic contrast to the sons of Eli, right? Sons of Eli disobey God. Samuel is obeying God. Sons of Eli refuse to listen to any authority placed above them, whereas Samuel is, is compliant with the authority placed above him. Interesting that Eli couldn't get his own sons to obey, and here Samuel is obeying Eli's authority now. And so the Lord rejects the sons of Eli, while at the same time showing favor to Samuel. Parents, do you see how important it is to be involved in the lives of your children? How important it is? Don't let the ministry come between you and your children, by the way. As many have done, and I've seen this happen before, many have put the church before their family, thinking this is the spiritual thing to do. It's not the spiritual thing to do. There's a balance that needs to be struck somewhere. By the way, the greatest amount of time you can spend in discipleship, and I'm not, talking, I'm not thinking of any individual right now. I'm not talking to one person in here or something. The greatest amount of time you can spend in discipleship is that of spending discipleship, time in discipleship with your own children, right? They've been dropped on your doorstep, and you need to spend time with them. Does that mean we neglect church? No, but we find the balance, right, of serving the Lord. And that, the, the scales better tip in favor of your, your family on that one, by the way. Because if you lose them, what ministry do you have? Now, I'm not saying, and God can still use you, yes. I'm not saying that all children are going to turn out like Samuel. As soon as I say this, a thousand questions are going to come up in your mind, right? Not all children are going to turn out like Samuel. I'm well aware of the fact, okay? But parents must not neglect their children. Now, some are saying, well, I wasn't saved when I was raising my children. I didn't know the Lord then. I understand. God knows that. God knows that. And and the thing you can do is pray for your children still and, and to try to influence them with the gospel as best as possible. God knows all that. I'm not trying to be harsh either, but I just want to encourage you as our responsibility is to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, right? Which we should all do. So what have we seen so far? We've seen the, the irreverence of Eli's sons versus the faithfulness of Samuel. We've seen the rejection of Eli's sons versus the maturing of Samuel. And then thirdly, the third contrast, the condemnation of Eli's house versus the continued faithfulness of Samuel. The condemnation of Eli's house versus the continued faithfulness of Samuel. That's found in verses 27 and on. Verse 27 says, Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father's house, your father when they were in Egypt and in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel. Why do you kick at me my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honoring your sons above me by making yourself fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? You have this unnamed man of God who appears in verse 27, comes to Eli with a message for him. Now, if you're reading the Old Testament, you already know. If a man of God comes your way, it's probably bad news for you. There's a strong possibility you're, you're about ready to get some bad news. And in this case, <clears throat> it's going to be bad news. The man of God is bringing a message of judgment upon the house of Eli. Now, do you see the, the irony of this? Eli is supposed to be a man of God, right? But he's not. And so a man of God has to come to him and say, Here, 
I got to give you a message from God. You're not really getting this whole thing. And he gets his message. So this man of God comes and he gives him a message. You know, the priesthood uh, was supposed to be, according to these verses, the priesthood of uh, back in that day was supposed to be a, a, a position of privilege. It was a position of privilege. And the Lord had signed to Aaron and his sons the, the responsibility to fulfill uh, the ministry in the priesthood. They had that responsibility, Aaron. Out of all the families, out of all the tribes in Israel, Aaron and his sons were chosen to minister as priests to Israel. So they had this responsibility, although it was very serious. They alone had the, uh, the opportunity to approach the Lord's uh, altar. They alone had the opportunity to wear the, the ephod that the priests wore. Uh, they were uh, in the sacred service for God. Now, Eli is a descendant of Aaron. He's a descendant of Aaron, and he knew all this, but his sons took priority over the Lord in his mind. As far as him not disciplining them is concerned, his sons took the priority there. And look what the Lord says through the man of God to Eli in verse 29. It says here, Why do you kick at my sacrifice, Eli, Why and my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me? By making yourselves fat with the choices of every offering of my people Israel. Why are you treating my sacrifices with such a scornful attitude? Why don't you care? He talks to Eli about this. He says, you're honoring your sons above me. Now, he says that because Eli had tolerated his son's irreverence. He had not removed them from the office of priesthood. He had not disciplined them. He had not said anything to them other than this, this light rebuke earlier on. In effect, he's giving more respect to his sons than he is to God because he didn't correct them. And that's what it says here. Now, earlier I said that you shouldn't let the church come between you and your family, and I, and I believe that, but we also can't put our children ahead of obedience to God on the converse side of that. You can't do that either. We've got to obey the Lord. Now, the church may not be first, but the Lord is first, and we've got to obey him and do what he says. Now, so Eli gave his son's prior, priority over the Lord, and not only that, but as I read this, I didn't realize this before. As I read this verse and think about it, he even participated in even the, eating the portions of fat that his sons had gotten wrongfully in the sacrifice. That's what it says over here in these verses. He says, why are you making yourselves fat, that's a plural word, including Eli, with the choices of every offering of my people Israel? Remember those large portions that they were getting from the offering, just jabbing in and taking what they wanted or threatening people? Give me the fat first, or I'm going to take it by force, all that. Well, it wasn't just Eli, or Hophni, and Phinehas that ate of that. They gave some of their father to eat as well, and he ate of it too. Now, he didn't participate in their intimidation tactics, but nevertheless, he ate of the food they brought him, and he knew what they were doing out there. He kept hearing reports about it. He did nothing to stop it. The man of God says, you have made yourselves fat with the choices of every offering. You know, Eli was a, a well-fed individual. He wasn't some thin guy. Because I, how do I know that? Look at, look at verse, chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 4, of eight, verse, verse 18 says that about Eli, uh, he fell off his seat backward beside the gate and his neck was broken and he died for he was what? Old and heavy, right? Now, the diet of that day in first century Israel hardly led to obesity. So could it be that he was so stuffed on the, the, these offerings and the fat of the offerings that he became heavy in time. That's a possibility. Look at verses 31 to 36. It says, Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house so 
there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for you, for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar so that your eyes will fail from weeping, your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning uh, your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul. I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. So you have a prophecy here a prophecy of the demise of Eli's house. He says, you're going down, basically. Um, this is a conditional agreement, by the way. He, he had promised that he would have Eli and his servants serve him forever, but it's conditional because look at verse 30. He says there, um, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. It's a conditional agreement. You're either, if you live the, the right way as a priest, you're going to continue in this. If not, you're, it's done. It's over with. Eli broke the, the agreement, didn't he? Because he failed to discipline his sons. It's a conditional agreement. <clears throat> Those who honor the Lord will be honored. Those who despise me, he says, will be lightly esteemed. The Lord will not let Eli and his sons continue to get away with this evil they're doing. So he intervenes. Far be it from me, he says, you know, God's not going to tolerate this. He's not going to tolerate a sinning priest in the Old Testament. He's not going to tolerate a sinning saint in the New Testament either, is he? That goes for the New Testament as well. If we honor God, we're going to be honored. It's a great verse, isn't it? If we decide, despise him, we're going to be lightly esteemed, it says. Now, the root meaning of this word, this phrase, lightly esteemed, is to, to accord little worth to something. So you have a, a, a great promise in this verse and also a great warning, right? A severe warning. We need to make sure we're honoring the Lord, unlike the sons of Eli did. In verse 31, God says, I will break your strength. Literally, I will cut off your arm. <clears throat> it's just a colorful way of saying, I'm going to destroy your house and your lineage, and you're not going to be around one day. And so strong will the judgment of God be upon you that one day everybody's going to die young in your family. An old man, no, nobody's even going to live to old age. You're not even going to have that as a, as a possibility. Now look at the detailed account of the specific judgments that take place in verses 31 to 36. First of all, Eli himself will suffer. Verse 32. Now verse 32 is difficult to translate. You're going to see a difference in the ESV and the NASB. It says, you'll see this, you will see the distress of my dwelling, Eli, is what he says. It's very clear, though, that Eli is going to see distress in his lifetime, and that happens in chapter 4, as we'll get to in the next few weeks. He hears about the ark of God being taken, and so he's distressed. And then the second specific judgment is in verse 33. And it, and it deals, it says, I will not call off every man of yours from my altar, uh, but I'm gonna, there's going to be one guy who's going to survive all this. And that's what it says. That one guy who will not be cut off from the house of, of Eli is found in 1 Samuel chapter 22. It talks about him. In 1 Samuel 22, King Saul has 85 priests of Nob destroyed, killed. They're descendants of Aaron, by the way. And, and descendants of Eli as well, descendants of Eli. And one priest that escapes is a guy named Abiathar. He escapes. He's the one guy in verse 33 is talking about that escapes. And he's not going to be cut off from the house of Eli. But eventually Solomon even expels him for a transgression he committed. 
Because it says in 1 Kings 2.27, So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being priest to the Lord in order to fulfill the word of the Lord which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli. So God brings his word to pass. 1 Kings 2.27. There's a third specific judgment that takes place in verse 34 where it says, Hophni and Phinehas on the same day, both of them will die. Both of them will meet an untimely death. And then it happens in chapter 4 and verse 11. They die young. And then fourthly, God will raise up another priestly family in their place. Get rid of those guys. He's not talking about Samuel, by the way. You might think he's talking about Samuel. He's not talking about Christ either. He's talking about Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K. A guy who's a descendant of Aaron also and a priest of David. You can read about him in 1 Kings, by the way. 1 Kings 1 and on. Eli and his house were not faithful to God's service, but Zadok and his sons would be as we go along in the scriptures and see that fulfilled later on. He talks about the anointed in verse 35. The anointed is the king that Zadok would, would serve under. So four judgments already. His family is going to be, Eli is going to see distress. His sons are going to die. Um, his family is going to be replaced with another family to be priest. And then look at the last one. Um, it says in verse 36, it talks about, Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread. What's going to happen is this. Anyone left in Eli's house one day is going to be so poverty-stricken that he's going to come to Zadok and his priestly family and he's going to beg for bread or say, can you please give me some menial tasks to do so I can get some bread or so I can get a little bit of money so I can meet my needs? He's going to be poverty-stricken. Anybody that's left in their line. So you see all this condemnation upon the house of Eli, very severe. And you see the fulfillment in later scriptures. But we have another contrast. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli. Samuel continues to be faithful. The house of Eli goes down the drain. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be condemned. God says they're going to be condemned. They're on the spiritual decline while faithful Samuel is continuing to grow in the things of the Lord consistently throughout this section. Now, I think there's something here for all of us in this chapter to be convicted about, right? I mean, I was convicted. I didn't want to get up there and say anything about this chapter at all, I'll be honest with you. I was convicted about it. And uh, parents should be convicted about it. And spiritual leaders should be convicted about it. And all of us should to some degree or another. But one thing we learn about all this is that the Lord's business is serious, right? The Lord's business is serious. We should take it seriously. The entirety of a believer's life is sacred. It's a sacred thing we're doing. His responsibilities are sacred. Uh, Raising children is sacred. Worshiping the Lord is sacred. Going to your job every day is sacred. It's all sacred before God. Everything we do is a sacred duty before the Lord. We need to take it seriously. The Christian life needs to be taken seriously because we're serving the Lord, right? Or that phrase often used here, before the Lord. It's going to be up to the Lord's going to separate the chaff from the weed. He's going to do that. You might be wondering right now, he's going to separate the chaff from the wheat. That's his judgment. Scripture says judgment begins at the house of God, though. He's going to deal with his people first. And if if we're scarcely saved, what will the unrighteous appear like, it says in that same verse. So he's going to bring condemnation on all those who turn away from him. Condemnation upon spiritual leaders who are phonies. He'll condemn them. And he'll purge the lives of his people for the work he wants them to do. The Lord says here in this chapter, those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. The scripture says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the Lord, right? 
It's a solemn responsibility that we have at the church here to serve the Lord as we undertake His work. Let's just make sure that we're serving Him in a way that is reverential, that is honoring to Him, in a way that truly honors Him and gives Him the reverence He deserves. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this time together for Your Word. And we pray that we would take the things of God seriously, the Word of God seriously. And we pray that we would be the people You'd have us to be, uh, listening to You, obeying You, taking heed to Your Word. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.